Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I walk with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Do you remember the politician John Boehner? John Boehner? Uh, He was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1991, serving a major part of rural Ohio. Uh, Most people remember him from his tenure as Speaker of the House of Representatives, one of the highest-ranking offices of the United States government, a task that he began in 2011. He was a Republican, and many of you may remember John Boehner from his sort of public opposition to a number of President Obama's initiatives. And I have to tell you that I'm haunted by John Boehner. And I'm haunted specifically by how his career ended, because one of the highlights of his political career was bringing Pope Francis, the Pope Francis, to Washington, D.C. to address a joint session of Congress, and Boehner was a devout Catholic. And in part of this uh, process of bringing the Pope over to speak, he had a private audience with Pope Francis, who blessed his newborn grandchild and gave him some spiritual counsel. And all of this really took place on a Thursday, right? All of this took place on a Thursday. On Friday morning, John Boehner announced he was quitting. Not just his position as the Speaker of the House, but his entire job as a U.S. representative. (laughs) One month later, after he announced his departure, John Boehner was gone from U.S. politics. He was, he was done, (laughs) And the story haunts me because, you know, first off, whatever happened to me if I met Pope Francis, I mean, I'm not Catholic, but, you know, maybe it wouldn't work on me. But still, I mean, meeting the Pope and then quitting your job the very next day, uh, right? And and this meeting had a very powerful impact on John Boehner. He had been um, a leader during a remarkably cantankerous political season. And despite his best efforts, he was unable to make important political compromises from a number of directions. And so whether it was humility or frustration or a sense of defeat or resignation, this visit from his spiritual leader led him to say prayers and resign the next day. That, that is the result of his visit with the Pope. And we're in our sermon series called The Divine Debrief Now, The Gospel in the Age of 20, uh, COVID-19. And today I want to speak about faith and church and state. If the gospel is true, how do we navigate the complex relationship we have as citizens of the kingdom of God with our earthly obligations to the government of the United States of America, in our case? This is especially true during a pandemic season when the government's rule has impacted our entire society and all of our community life together. And so what I'd like to do is just uh, give you a quick overview of church and state and the struggles that the Bible presents for us. And then maybe we can talk about some general principles we can draw from that about contemporary matters for our own time and how they relate to the gospel, the core of Christian belief. And, and you know, rarely have we as Christians had to think so hard about this particular piece of theology, 
We have been blessed to live and worship freely in ways that the history of the world has heretofore not yet experienced. And so I invite you to flex your theology muscles with me today as we engage and try to put together some sort of theology of the church and state, especially in the midst of COVID-19. And so for looking at a biblical theology of the church and state, really the Old Testament, it helps and it doesn't help. Because on the one hand, you have lots of examples of stories and, and, and context and pieces to read. But on the other hand, you see it all. You have good governments with good spiritual foundations who are blessed by God. You have bad governments, not just other nations, but Israel. You know, Israel, Assyria, Egypt, and the like. You have bad governments with awful spiritual foundations who are cursed by God. And then you have good kings who have bad kids. And then you have bad kings who have good kids. And you have ungodly, wicked citizens disobeying and rebelling against a good and godly government. And you also have good and godly, faithful citizens disobey and rebel against the bad governments. <laughs> Church and state matters in the Old Testament run the gamut, as they say. But one of the things we can't take away, we can take away, excuse me, one of the things we can take away from the Old Testament is this common grace, this universally acknowledged gift of living under a just government. It is a blessing of God when the government serves the people with justice and fairness and not corruption or self-interest. Uh, in our readings today, one of them is from 2 Samuel, and it's when King David, uh, Israel's most beloved and famous king, is when he's dying on his deathbed. And King David shares a very simple observation as he passes uh, from this mortal life. He says this, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. A good leader, says David, is a blessing akin to the providence of God that gives us a beautiful day. A good ruler is like good weather. There's order and growth and prosperity and there's no anxiety. But a bad ruler, by implication, is like a drought or a famine. Both cause you to fear and for the future, really. Um, that, that a good ruler is sort of consistency and goodness and, and it's just, there's no anxiety there. But a bad ruler is total anxiety and causes you to fear for the future. Moreover, more than this, of course, more than just everybody wants to have a just government over top of them, moreover, what the Old Testament really wants to emphasize is that first and foremost, God is actually king. God is the ultimate governing authority. As good as earthly kings can be, the great overarching theme of the Old Testament is that God is king over and above the kings of the earth. That's the central theme of Psalm 2, which is the psalm that we read or we're going to read in church today. Psalm 2 asks this question, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And later on, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And so our God laughs and holds in derision any earthly government in opposition to God's godly will. And ultimately, any king or ruler of the earth will find themselves subjects to the ruler of the God of heaven. There is a higher power than any government or king or president or mayor or prime minister or supreme leader or dictator or whoever, right? They are not 
ultimately in charge. They are all subject to the divine will of a heavenly king. Pharaoh in Egypt, right? Ten plagues learned this the hard way. So did Nebuchadnezzar, who God made crazy, and his son Belshazzar, who saw the literal handwriting on the wall. Uh, and, and so the psalm continues. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, or O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Okay, Pastor Brian, we get it. God is in heaven and the kings on earth pale in comparison to his power. But that doesn't mean we are exempt from life under an earthly government. What does this Bible say about that? Fair enough. And to your point, you know, even Jesus himself lived under an earthly government, right? He used their minted currency. He walked on the roads they maintained. He benefited from the peace that the Roman army had secured. And so we all have these practical, lived out realities of what does it mean to have God for a king and a person as the president? And that's actually one of the New Testament's primary concerns. If we're ultimately citizens of heaven first, how do we navigate the uh, sometimes ungodly expectations of uh, a government, right? Um, in the New Testament times, it was a ungodly pagan government. And the letter writers of the New Testament discuss this theme in at least four explicit places, right? Paul says that government exists under God's sovereignty to keep justice until Jesus' return. And so Paul says that the primary concern of a government is to keep peace and justice, and Paul also says we're to pray for our government officials that we would be committed to the task of supporting them, pray for them so that these governments would not fall into corruption and that they would continue to do their work well. And Peter, we read in our reading today, right? Peter has something to say to his readers as well because uh, he, he, he says, fear God and honor the emperor. Fear God honor the emperor, which is very kind of countercultural when you think about it, because the emperor really wants you to fear him. But Peter doesn't say that. Peter says, honor the emperor, but fear God. And he says so because, you know, good conduct is not going to draw the violent arm of a just government. That if you're in all ways a good citizen, then you don't have to fear the emperor. This is kind of ironic, right? This is the image on the front of the bulletins today and in the, the church email. Uh, Caravaggio has this very pain, famous painting of, of Peter being crucified, and, and Peter had requested that he be crucified upside down as to not mimic Jesus' crucifixion in the same way. And so the very same state that Peter says, hey, we should be good, godly citizens in every way we can so that the state doesn't sort of come after us and we draw the ire of the state, well, that st state still killed St. Peter. So there's some irony there. But more than this, perhaps, is this continued rejection of political categories by Jesus in his earthly ministry. Um, a lot of people try to drag Jesus into political arguments. They say things like, hey, Jesus, do you pay this tax? Hey, Jesus, uh, what do you think about Pilate putting down that insurrection in Galilee last week with all the violence? Hey, Jesus, what do you think about um, tax collectors? Why do you talk to them? Because they're clearly collecting pagan government taxes. And when Jesus is presented with these political questions, he never engages with them. He says things like, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which is God's. He says, look, just pay the two penny tax so we don't have to cause a fuss. He says, don't concern yourself with all the political hot topics of the day, but be concerned more about your own spirit and your own sins. 
And this comes forward, especially in our reading today from the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and the crowd responds with not sort of grateful um, hearts to Jesus' teaching, but they respond with uh, political thoughts. They don't see him as a teacher of repentance and faith and returning to God for spiritual renewal. Um, they see Jesus as a free meal ticket now after he multiplies uh, all of the bread and the fish. They're thinking, no more famine, no more farming, no more starvation. If Jesus can make bread out of thin air, well, he should be our king and we'll never go hungry again. But as the crowds rush to put together an impromptu coronation ceremony right there on the spot, Jesus, knowing their intentions, he runs away before they can put their plan into action. Jesus does not want their coronation. And look, this is a very extensive topic. We, we, we can touch on all these Bible passages uh, it, it, we could spend a lot more time here, but I don't want to do that today. Um, Paul says we're kingdoms of uh, members of the kingdom of heaven, and then he uses his earthly citizenship to just strategically maneuver the political trap he finds himself in. Queen Esther uh, works within the confines of her political role to save Israel from an ancient sort of pre-Holocaust. The exiles in Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, they all serve the pagan government to the best of their ability until they're asked to compromise their faith, and then they're all sent to die for it. We could spend plenty of time exploring this question, but I think that's outside our scope. What I want to do is narrow things down a bit and talk a little bit about more about what are some themes we can draw from the scripture about our relationship with the government in light of the Christian gospel. So here's a few things. Three, and then we'll conclude. First, there does seem to be a pattern in the Bible where believers go out of their way to be good citizens up to a limit. And I once heard a pastor describe it very pithily, and I think it's helpful. He said, a government cannot forbid what is commanded, and it cannot command what is forbidden. Uh, and that's a well-tested piece of shorthand for us as we contemplate our own political endeavors. A government cannot forbid what is commanded, and cannot command what is forbidden. In the Bible itself, right, there's this story of a, a wicked queen in Israel named Jezebel who makes worship of Israel's God illegal. No more animal sacrifices to God. Sacrifices were only allowed to her God, Baal. Um, she had forbidden something that was commanded by God. And similarly, part of the reason Peter was crucified upside down was because his Roman government had commanded something that was forbidden. They said worship uh, the, the pagan pantheon god, or you're going to um, die. And Peter refuses to renounce his faith and die. Um, and, and he would basically say, hey, you know what? I would rather uh, uh, um, I would rather expose how terrible you are and die than give up my core conviction. Um, that Peter's government was not like the one David had written about on his deathbed. And the result was he um, uh, was disobedient to the end. And so it begs the question, right? Has our government forbidden what is commanded and commanded what is forbidden across the pandemic? And I'll touch on this very, very briefly, but I can say with confidence in the state of Pennsylvania that ours has not. Um, none of the shutdown orders applied to churches and houses of worship, right? Um, every time there were new orders, it says, uh, churches, houses of worship, we strongly recommend you do this, but we are not going to enforce it because you all have liberty of conscience. And there were recommendations, of course, but the, the reality is, is, is we as the leaders of the church, the vestry, uh, your, your pastor, in consultation with the diocese, 
we were making the decisions about how to run things, and it wasn't the state telling us to do so. Um, we have received no state-level or federal-level commandments over the past year and a half. And this isn't to say that other states and other nations didn't do this, right? That, that I think there were some places in the United States that overstepped their bounds, and they forbade what is commanded. But epiphany, for us, that has not been the case. And so... If you are considering considering any spiritual disobedience to the state, right, uh, civil disobedience, but for the church, we'll call it spiritual disobedience to the state, um, I commend you that shorthand, right? If you can say your prayers about when the government has forbidden what is commanded and commanded what is forbidden, say a prayer, talk to a pastor, talk to some people around you, uh, think about it reflectively, but if that's how God is calling you to respond, there is a historic Christian pattern for this. So that's the first thing, right? Uh, the government should not command what is forbidden, and the government cannot forbid what is commanded. Second, um, the first Christians did not see eye to eye on matters of politics. This is the second thing to take away. Um, one of the scandals of Jesus's ministry is that he purposefully and intentionally put together a politically diverse group of disciples. And this is really interesting. You can look at the list of the original 12 disciples, and you'll find one of them, his name was Simon, called uh, the Zealot, Simon the Zealot. Now, what was Simon zealous for, right? People have asked that question, and the answer is that the Zealots were a political faction in ancient Israel. They were a political party. And what the Zealots advocated for was the violent overthrow of Roman occupation. And so that was one particular viewpoint that was represented in the original 12 disciples. But Jesus also brought on board his 12 disciples a man named Matthew, also named Levi, Levi Matthew, same dude, and he was a tax collector. This was a man who, who saw the occupying Roman force and said, I need a job, I should go collect their taxes for them. And sure enough, one guy on Jesus' 12 disciples said, we should kill all the Romans and kick them out. The other said, I'm going to go collect their taxes for them because they are here and I need a job. And well, you know, they're here. Tax collectors would have seen zealots as these violent enemies. And zealots would have seen tax collectors as traitors. You can't put two people like that together. It's the most politically diverse group of opinions. One's going to take the other's money. The other's going to take the other person's life. And yet Jesus brings both of these men into his inner circle of 12. One of my favorite modern examples of this uh, took place at a global mission conference in 1974. Um, a very significant part of our sort of modern understanding of global missions comes from the Luzan Conferences, which is a series of these multi-denominational meetings that took place over the last 50 years. And the first one was in 1974, and it brought together a whole lot of evangelicals from the entire world to talk about global mission. Billy Graham was there. So was the Anglican theologian John Stott from England. And after the initial conference was completed, everyone was happy, everyone was excited, and um, everyone went home and agreed to meet again in some subcommittees to help finish the conference's uh, writing and the implications of what they discussed. Well, when they got together, the, after uh, Luzon in 1974, when the, the subcommittee met, Billy Graham was there and he stood up and said to the committee, I think we need to focus strictly on mission and evangelism, Look at the social gospel with its economic emphasis and its, its sort of good works and charity emphasis. It has turned a bunch of American Christians into heretics, and it has turned our seminaries into works righteousness garbage. 
let's just stick to preaching about Jesus. Let's keep it about Jesus and give people Jesus. That's all they need. Um, let's not worry about the other things until later on. Well, the next day, John Stott stood up and said to the committee, if we're going to do this Billy Graham's way, I quit. <laughs> I will resign and leave. He said, it's abhorrent to give people the bread of life and not give them actual bread too. We need to pair our gospel teaching with social action or else this whole thing is going to be a joke and we're going to be laughed at and no one will take the gospel seriously. The whole committee went into an uproar because John Stott and Billy Graham, they had known each other for years. They are two of the most famous evangelicals in the entire world. And their disagreements weren't more than just uh, sort of theological. They reflected, in many ways, their home cultures. Billy Graham was an American. It's the 1970s. He is anti-communist. He is pro-capitalist. He is very, very American in his outlook. But John Stott come from, came from the UK, and they have socialized medicine and all these other big government programs that have worked well for him and his people. They were friends, but they disagreed on politics, and, and, and it had seeped its way into their conversations about the nature of mission. And so people got mad at Stott because they thought he was trying to blackmail the committee, and people argued the rest of the day over this sort of thing. You know, is social action a component of this work, or should we be just preaching and teaching about Jesus? And they, they had a problem, but it was not just a theological problem, it was a political problem. And it was a church and state question alongside a church mission question. Would you like to know how they solved the problem? Well, they took one well-respected theologian from Fuller Seminary, a man named Peter Wagner, who agreed with Billy Graham. So they took a theologian who agreed with Billy Graham, and they took John Stott, and they locked them in a room together. <laughs> and they said, figure it out. <laughs> and sure enough, they came up with some mealy-mouthed verbiage that they both agreed with and, and that people could read into. But they needed to figure out a way to get along because the mission of the church depended on it. And after the whole thing had passed, Billy Graham wrote John Stott a letter and said this, There is no man that I respect, love, admire, and would godly follow more devotedly than I would you. And so Christians, they disagree on church-state matters, and it's been that way since Jesus' 12 disciples. And they come out of it on the other side in unity and in brotherly love. Who cares if four out of five evangelicals voted Republican in the last election and only one voted Democrat or third party? If there are, as the estimate goes, 100 million evangelicals in the U.S., that means 20 million of our brothers and sisters in Christ voted differently than the other 80 million. And so if we're going to be like Jesus, we must welcome those into our fold with different political beliefs. Christians can disagree on church-state matters and come out of the other side in unity and in brotherly love because regardless of our political disagreements about the earthly governments, we are all citizens of the kingdom of God. Despite our democratic disagreements, we are, at the end of the day, uh, divine monarchists in our preferred form of government. Finally, last thing and then we'll close. Uh, if the job of the state is justice as Paul observed alongside others in scripture. That means that the state, by definition, cannot be a source of grace and mercy. We hear stories of clemency and lenience here and there, but these are not equivalent to the totally forgiving, complete exoneration of the God of heaven. 
If offenders go free at the level of any level of government, right, we don't think of that as grace and mercy. We say that is a miscarriage of justice. It's only by Jesus's death and resurrection for sinners that God can be both just and merciful. Friends, the state can't raise anyone from the dead. Therefore, it cannot be a venue for mercy. The Christian gospel is, friends, that we've been talking about for some time now, is that Jesus Christ died and rose again. He's coming back to fix the world. And there's forgiveness of sins for those who repent and ask for it. And if the job of the state is to execute justice and fairness, then it cannot forgive the sins of the repentant. So the state cannot be the vehicle through which the gospel is preached. It is good and right, of course, that we craft a state whose vision for justice is a Christian vision. This is why we evangelicals do get involved in politics, because we care that the particular justice we're advocating for from the government level is God-given. It's in a God-given framework. We want one of King David's governments that's like rain on a crop field and a, a beautiful morning and a cloudless day. We want that, and our political systems require us to be involved so we can do that. We can craft a godly government by being involved. And yet, we cannot confuse our advocacy for a godly system of justice with the gospel itself, something I think many in the American church have done, which is, again, why I'm so haunted by John Boehner's resignation. I cannot imagine the, the cataclysmic, massive, life-changing epiphany that came from a 15-minute audience with the Pope. It wasn't that he was going to just, you know, not run for re-election at the end of his cycle. It wasn't that he was going to retire at the end of his term. He announced his intent was to quit in 30 days, long enough to finish up his current projects and not leave his colleagues in a lurch. And the reports say that when the news came, his colleagues, they took it as complete surprise. And some of them even wept at the news. People don't quit their jobs like this, friends, in such an abrupt way unless there's a scandal, unless there's a spiritual awakening. Those are the two things. And by all accounts, John Boehner's experience was the latter. What must it have been like to meet your spiritual leader and become convinced that the job you spent your entire career shooting for was not worth continuing? What notions of success and power and vocation must have been relinquished? I tell you this morning, friends, that just like John Boehner experienced, the spiritual will always outlast the political. No government will ever love you as the king of heaven. No civil servant will actually die for your sins. No judge will wipe your slate clean like the blood of Jesus. And as we continue to ask what we owe our country, which gives us many good things, we must first ask what we owe to our king who has given us everything. In Jesus' name. Amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, lay down in grief, broke with the keys, fell on that day, firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.